Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we ask the question, can one single person write both award-winning literary speculative fiction and Marvel's newest Captain America series and also be a former civil rights lawyer and film school graduate and be less than 35 years old? I mean, it is insane. <laughs> but it of is. course, the answer is yes. Otherwise, we would not have framed it that way. And yes, we're talking about Tochi Onyabuchi. Honestly, I don't know when he sleeps. He has a new novel just out called Goliath. And in April, Marvel Comics is debuting a new Captain America series that Tochi is writing, starring Sam Wilson as the first Black Captain America. Which means, I think it's fair to say, that Tochi Onyabuchi is Captain America. And I'm not sure there's anything cooler than that, seriously. Definitely not. No, definitely not. We got to talk to Tochi about both of his new projects, and it was so interesting and so much fun. The first half of this episode focuses on Goliath, and the second half is about Tochi's lifelong love of all things Marvel and his vision for Captain America. It was fun to get the inside scoop, hearing what it was like for Tochi to go from being a Marvel fan to a Marvel writer, and what, if any, limits Marvel has imposed on him. Hearing what he has planned for Sam Wilson was really exciting. Tochi is also the author of the Beasts Made of Night series, the War Girls series, and Marvel's Black Panther Legends limited series. His first novel for adults, Riot Baby, is both a global dystopian narrative and an intimate family story with quietly devastating things to say about love, fury, and the Black American experience. Riot Baby was a finalist for the Hugo, Nebula, Locus, and NAACP Image Awards, and winner of the New England Book Award for Fiction, the Ignite Award for Best Novella, and the World Fantasy Award. Goliath is a New York Times Editor's Choice pick and a most anticipated pick for USA Today, Bustle, BuzzFeed, Goodreads, Nerdist. I mean, the list goes on and on. Tochi's new book, Goliath, is a post-apocalyptic vision of the United States. Wealthy, mostly white people have fled Earth for space colonies, while Black people and other people of color salvage what life they can from a planet with radioactive air and a collapsing infrastructure. This description is hugely oversimplified. I really urge everyone who's listening to go read the book if you haven't already. But one of the things I found so powerfully disturbing about Goliath, and I actually mean that as a compliment, is that it's set in the very near future. Some of the characters are old enough to remember the world as it was for us, for the reader today. And the youngest characters are only a generation away from where we are now. So we hear about a pandemic, internet and social media use, racial injustice and climate change in a way that's deeply familiar. At the same time, there are elements of the world of Goliath that are almost unrecognizable. So we asked Tochi to tell us how he was thinking about time when he wrote the book and what made him decide to set it when he did. He started his answer by telling us he was thinking about what the world would look like to him personally 30 years from now. And then he went on from there. I tried to extrapolate me into the future as opposed to, you know, a character that I was creating from whole cloth um, with their own set of experiences and whatnot. 
I tried to imagine, okay, this person right now that is in their 30s, that has accumulated the experiences that they've accumulated, like what's the world going to be like in 2050? And it ended up being a sort of, you know, macabre bit of cosmic choreography that 2050 is often the year that is named in, you know, the IPCC climate reports as the year when, you know, the book of revelations is going to start happening if we don't, if we don't act, you know, to stem the tide of climate change now. And so there was that bit of, of, confluence with regards to what the future might look like at that point, and specifically this country, the United States, what the United States might look like at that point. Mm-hmm. But you you also play with time a lot. There are a lot of flashbacks and they're not always, mm-hmm. they're flashbacks to different time periods. Sometimes they're, I don't know what it's called when you flash ahead, but the opposite of flashback. <laughs> <laughs> you, you jump in time. And I'm curious mm-hmm. to know why, what you were, um, what your thinking was. Certainly. I wanted this book to be scopic in a sense. You know, in some ways it shares DNA with Riot Baby, but in other ways I wanted to write a book that in some sense architecturally and craft-wise was the polar opposite. Mm -hmm. So Riot Baby is very much defined by its constriction. It's claustrophobic. It's less than 200 pages. And I wanted to write something that had expanse, that had scope, that could traverse a wide swath of geographic and temporal space. Mm -hmm. And I also am very much influenced by all the anime that I watched as a kid and Mm -hmm. still watch now. And so one of the features in a lot of particularly shonen anime is strategically placed flashbacks to sort of maximize emotional uh, oomph or, you know, to recast your relationship with a particular character. Sometimes you'll see this, you know, right on the eve of a large battle between the protagonist and antagonist or something. And there'll be a a flashback highlighting the antagonist's like tragic past and whatnot. It'll be this extended look into their backstory such that when you return to the present, you know, this is not just a regular, degular, bad character that, you know, the protagonist is facing off against, but somebody that's more well-rounded. And so there was a little bit of that that went into the construction and placement of these flashbacks. But also, I think it was an opportunity to talk a little bit about what the world might have been like in that interim period between now and the present in which the story takes place. Right. There is so much in the book when you're describing the time period that we know now that's very current. The pandemic is an obvious one. Mm -hmm. So did you start writing this during the pandemic or were you already working on it and then adding to it as events happened? Actually, the first iteration of Goliath, I wrote in the spring of 2015. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So talk so, about patient. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So all those bits about people wearing masks and all of that predated our current pandemic by about five years. It's a book that stayed with me up until I'd sold it in, I think it was 2020. You know, I'd constantly been looking back at it, looking over my shoulder back at the book, because I knew, you know, it was good the way that I had written it in that first iteration. Mm -hmm. But 
I knew it had the potential to be something much better, but I didn't know how to get it to that place. And I didn't think that I was a good enough writer at that time, and rightly so, to bring it to that place. There was a lot that I had to learn and practice and try out in the interim. When I finally sat back down with it, it was probably sometime in 2020. And this was before, you know, a lot of the features of the pandemic as we know it now started to really, really, really take shape. Um, You know, it's it's weird. A lot of it, a similar thing happened with Riot Baby, albeit on a more thematic level. You know, Riot Baby was published January 2020. And about five months later, George Floyd was killed. And people experienced a lot of the sort of rising to the surface of racial turmoil that um, is mentioned in Riot Baby. And that is alluded to very explicitly in Riot Baby. And so it was one of those instances where it seemed as though the present or the moment was catching up to the book. Yeah. But really, I think, and this I think is the case with science fiction in general, you know, every story that we write, no matter how far flung into the future, is about our present. You know, it's about our now. And so it's generally a sort of unhappy accident when those material circumstances begin to directly mirror what exists in a piece of fiction. Yeah. But also, I think what that underscores is that, you know, in Riot Baby, with the example of George Floyd, but in a lot of other science fiction you're capturing something that happens over and over and over again. So we identify it with the most recent event, but in fact, you could have written it five years ago, five, you know, I hope not five years from now, but you could have written it at many other Mm -hmm. times and we would have thought it was directly relevant. Another part of the power of Goliath is that it's structurally challenging. A lot of the information is conveyed by inference or it's doled out slowly over the course of the story. So the reader has to work to understand the rules of the world and to figure out where each scene fits in the timeline. There are a number of point of view characters and until I got to know them better, it wasn't always immediately obvious to me when the point of view switched. And so I feel like Almost any specifics that I reveal here are spoilers because listeners who haven't read Goliath yet should have the opportunity to figure things out for themselves. I think there's a huge emotional payoff to that work, so I don't want to deprive anyone of it. But I'd love to know how you thought about what to spell out for the reader and how and when to convey information, if you can tell us about that without giving away anything important. Certainly. I really wanted to write a book that would reward rereading, mm-hmm. you know, a type of book that you couldn't necessarily speed through or that I, as a reader, couldn't necessarily speed through, you know, one where you would really have to pay attention to things and you would have these aha moments when you would put pieces together. I was very much inspired by by various books like A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon mm-hmm. James, which is just this magnificent, magisterial, like operatic, you know, political history of Jamaica in many ways. And it's got like the 30 plus POV characters <laughs> in it. It's it's one of the most audacious books that I've ever read in my entire life. And, you know, it's dense. Yeah. You know, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack. And and another book from which I drew a lot of inspiration, and this was more a structural thing than anything else, was Roberto Bolaño's 2666, 
what really just knocked me over the head with that book was just how much of the reading experience depended on inference. Because you had these sections that the book was divided into, and oftentimes there was no ostensible connection between them, at least on a plot level. Maybe there were thematic resonances, but it almost seemed as though you were reading separate books sort of squished in between two covers. And so the reading experience essentially demanded of the reader that they come up with, that they build their own bridges between the sections and figure out how this thing connected to that thing connected to that other thing. And that was super powerful to me because it really enlisted the reader in the task of uncovering what was going on. But also it was interesting that I think individual readers would have individual answers to the question of how do these things connect. Um, I really latched on to the elliptical quality of the storytelling there, and I wanted to see if it was possible for me to replicate that in meaningful fashion. Well, you're describing my reading experience. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you nailed it in, in both of those regards, because, you know, there is a lot of work to it. But then over time, it I found ways to knit it together And the payoff was huge, both from an emotional standpoint and from kind of a philosophical standpoint. You know, the ideas that you were Mm -hmm. that were in the book um, and the way they interrelated was it's really hard to talk about this without giving away too much. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's mission accomplished for me. That makes me feel really good. (laughs) Go check a big box. (laughs) Well, we can at least say this. One of the main themes of Goliath is gentrification. So some Mm -hmm. of the white people who have been living in the space colonies are starting to come back to the cities that they abandoned with devastating consequences for the people who stayed. You write nonfiction as well as fiction, so you could have explored this topic in a very different way. What were you able to convey in fiction that you couldn't or didn't want to convey in nonfiction? I think one thing that was interesting to me was that with fiction, I could bring together a number of different issues that in nonfiction, I either would have had to explore separately or would have had to take on their own and then put together in a single piece, at least in terms of the research that I was doing, et cetera. But with Goliath, I could put together you know, issues of climate change, and gentrification and all sorts of other things like environmental concerns, all of that, smush that into a single work. And that to me was very, that was very compelling Um, because in my mind, so many of these things are connected, but if you look at it in terms of how they happen in the real world, the connection can be very attenuated. So there's a minor character in the book, a white woman who's a journalist, and she follows a crew of black and Latinx brick stackers working on a story about them and how they're being displaced by the colonists who are returning. And at one point, the journalist says to one of these brick stackers, it's not my fault, okay? I can't get rid of being white and my guilt is useless if I can't do something with it. So I write, I educate, I'm able to go into spaces others can't and I walk in and walk back out with these stories that I can show to other people. And they can read these stories and know that these people who look nothing like them are just as human. I have that power. I can do that. I can be of service. But of course, the attention that she brings is ultimately destructive. And you capture that dynamic so well, the sort of good intentions and naivete of the white ally and the ambivalence or antipathy of the stackers. And 
also how it's inevitable that her interference will inevitably do them harm. And I'm wondering if you could expand a bit on the inevitability part of that or any part that you want to. So, I mean, you, you said it perfectly, like, <laughs> like you nailed it. Like that, that was, that was exactly it. I mean, the, one of the things that I really wanted to get into was, you know, allyship and particularly white allyship. Cause you know, so much of this, or at least the editing of this inevitably carried fingerprints of summer 2020 and the aftermath. And what was fascinating to me was the ways in which white allyship sort of could reveal its fickleness, but also, you know, not help, mm-hmm. if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And sometimes not even just not help, but actually be counterproductive. And, you know, I would think about these people sort of in the midst of their allyship, and oftentimes they would express consternation that their efforts weren't being appreciated. You know, they weren't necessarily getting their cookies or their pats on the back or what have you. They weren't being accepted by their communities. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea that there's a sort of end goal at which point they've completed their portion of reparations um, is, is an illusion, right? It's never enough. And I think that was the thing that I wanted to show with this character, who's also like incredibly aware of her privilege and aware of the horrible circumstances that the stackers are in and aware of so many socioeconomic parts. And she's, you know, well-educated and incredibly articulate and all of these things. But it's what she's trying to do, even if she can envision it as helping, is never going to be enough to ameliorate their circumstances. And in the end, ends up being, you know, horrifically counterproductive. And I don't know, I just, I, I wanted to depict and dramatize a lot of what I'd been thinking about with regards to reportage on marginalized communities by white reporters. And oftentimes the reason they're white reporters is because they are the ones with access to the pipeline, um, whether they like it or not. They go to the schools that have the editors that end up hiring them or, you know, for whatever reason, they wind up with the connections or wind up in the network where they can write for somewhere like Harper's or The New Yorker or The London Review of Books or Esquire. And I feel like there's a certain tone or dynamic that isn't intentionally zoological, but at the same time, you know, it does carry this this aspect of distance simply by the fact that they're not of the community that they're reporting on. And sometimes that can be, you know, called journalistic objectivity, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it can sometimes be twisted into that. But um, that was something that I wanted to that I wanted to capture. I just want to talk about the character of the white journalist a little more. As he does with so much else in Goliath, Tochi uses her character to thoroughly capture a particular dynamic with nuance and complexity. It's why you want to take your time reading, because there's a lot to think about. There was a reason I wanted to read the journalist's monologue aloud in its entirety in my own voice. It reminds me why it's so important to examine and reflect on my assumptions as a white person trying to confront racial inequity. Yes, absolutely. We do have to think deeply about our assumptions. 
And as the monologue reminds us, we can't stop there. We have to also think through and understand the potential ramifications of our actions in a warped system. And of course, try to change the system. You know, to state the obvious, there is a lot of work to be done. Yes, there is. But now for a giant pivot, I really don't know how to get from A to B other than just to say, okay, change of topic. So as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Tochi is the author of the new comic book series that stars Sam Wilson as the famous Captain America. Turns out that Tochi has been a huge Marvel Comics fan his entire life. So the opportunity to write the series was a dream come true for him. We asked him about that. Take a listen. Can you tell us the story of how you went from reader to intern to writer at Marvel? Oh, my goodness. What an epic story that was. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) No, it really is incredible. And just like, I don't know, I feel like it has so many of the hallmarks of like a hero's journey type of story. (laughs) But, um, you know, I'd grown up reading and loving the Marvel comics, right? I was a hardcore Marvel kid. Mm -hmm. And particularly with the X books, that was my big thing. And also it was the 90s. Like you couldn't throw a stone and not hit an X-Men storyline somewhere. That was when it really exploded, you know, beyond the comic book world. I remember that so clearly. Exactly. You had the animated series, all of that. So avid Marvel reader growing up. And so I think it's like fall of 2011. I'm halfway through film school. Before law school, I went to NYU to pursue an MFA in dramatic writing. So learning how to write screenplays, stage plays, writing for TV. And one component of the degree was that you had to do an internship. And most of the people in my program, they would intern with theater companies like Playwrights Horizons, or they would you know, intern with a production company in the film arena, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I decided to intern with Marvel and I was very happy when they approved my <laughs> my like application. And so I interned with Marvel at their offices in New York and one of my fellow interns she was an editorial intern and I was a social media intern. And so I got to do extraordinary things like go to my first Comic-Con for the first time. Like mm-hmm. Marvel sent me to New York Comic-Con in the fall of 2011 basically to like document the Marvel panels and to like live tweet them and all this incredible stuff. It was magnificent. Wait, wait, did you dress up? No, I, so I'm not that, I'm not really a big cosplay. I love cosplay. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of Comic-Con. I just, I recognize that it's not my lane. Like, <laughs> I, I leave it to the professionals. Okay, <laughs> totally fair. But uh, yeah, like, and I would get to interface with all these incredible creators like Matt Fraction, you know, so that happens. I do the internship, I graduate and all of that. And, you know, I remain an avid reader of the comics and watcher of the movies, all of that. You know, I stay in touch with my friend who ends up working in editorial full time. So like that to me was like the holy grail. (laughs) She was like a Marvel editor. Um, So that was incredible to me. And One of the just like absolute wonderful things about her was that once I started publishing books, she went to great lengths to make sure that those books were appearing in the office and so that they were showing up on the desks of some of these editors who like assign books to writers and all of that. And so she went out of her way to basically put in a good name for me at the company, which like I will be forever 
ever grateful. Yeah, that's a good friend. <laughs> She's a big reason why so much of this has happened. And so I think it was the tail end of 2020. Marvel reached out because they have this series called Marvel's Voices, where they basically reach out to and enlist editors from, you know, from marginalized communities, but it ties into the theme of the particular issue. And they're hired to basically write one shots, which are short stories based on various Marvel characters of their choosing. And so Marvel reached out to me based off of the strength of the work that I'd already put out, asking if I wanted to do a one shot in Marvel's Voices Legacy, which would come out February of 2021. And I got to write a short story, a one shot of Domino, who over the course of writing that story became like my favorite character, Domino famously played by Zazie Beetz in Deadpool 2. So that was such a fantastic experience that I was like, okay, we like have to do something else now. And I believe it was later that year, you know, another Marvel editor reached out about the possibility of doing a Black Panther book for younger readers. And before, you know, she even finished that sentence, I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so that was how I got involved as the writer for Black Panther Legends, which is a middle grade retelling of T'Challa's origin story as Black Panther. And so far, two issues have launched, and it's a four-issue limited series, uh, and the remaining two issues will be launching in 2022. Mm -hmm. And that's been a dream experience, an absolute dream. Like, I walk into local comic book stores now and can, like, pick up issues of Marvel comics that I've written. Yeah, that's going to yeah, be amazing. Totally amazing. Yeah. So in the announcement of the series, you said, I'm quoting you, we've seen Sam Wilson deal with the legacy of Captain America and race in very inward terms with regards to America. What does it mean for America to accept a black Captain America? One of the things I'm teasing in my book is, what does it mean for the rest of the world to accept a black Captain America? Can you tell us more about how you're planning to explore those themes? Oof, oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to get like incoherent. <laughs> Bring this. it on. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think one of the most exciting aspects of writing Sam Wilson as Captain America is that we have barely touched the surface of him interacting in this capacity with the rest of the Marvel universe. We have no idea what his relations with other heroes, uh, or at least who have traditionally been heroes, uh, might be. We don't know what his relationship with other villains or who we've traditionally thought of as villains might be. You know, we haven't seen Sam interact as, you know, as leader of the Avengers, like in so many of these situations. And that to me means that it's so, so, so ripe for storytelling potential. I think another aspect of it as well is that, you know, in college, I was a poli-sci major with a focus on international relations. And so I was always fascinated by the world outside the borders of the United States. And it never left. And so I watch a lot of foreign films. I watch a lot of foreign TV shows. And I'm just really fascinated by America's interaction with the world outside of America. Mm -hmm. And if Captain America is this sort of you know, in some ways, like a mimesis or even like a synecdoche of America in many ways or a representation of America, then what does it mean 
you know, to represent America in these foreign places, you know, especially when America's foreign policy has been in the past and historically characterized as subversive, you know, has been characterized as destructive. What is it going to look like if Captain America, as embodied in Sam Wilson, is enlisted in an effort at regime change? What is that going to mean for Sam? How is he going to react to that? What is that going to mean for Captain America, as is the subtitle of the book, A Symbol of Truth? I'm just so excited to dig into that. And it's, you know, to Marvel's extraordinary credit that they have basically let me operate with no guardrails <laughs> whatsoever. That was going to be my next question. I, was, I wanted to ask you, who gets to decide the answers to that? Are there Marvel gods who say, well, the way we want Sam to interact with these characters, you know, we want him to have friendship relationships with these, we want him to get into a fight with this person, and we want these countries looking at him a certain way, or do they just let you pick? It's all up to me. It's all, oh. like, it's, it's wild. It's, it's oh. like, it's so powerful. Amazing. <laughs> it's but so powerful. Your yeah. choices yeah. don't, sorry, sorry, I have no idea how this works. But doesn't that mean then that your choices affect other Marvel writers and what they, how they choose to shift their storylines and characters. So that's a wonderful thing about Marvel is that they're, you know, they're constantly keeping track of these things, but also, you know, in the event of, of crossover events or things of that sort, they're very good at putting writers in touch. And so those sorts of things can be coordinated, but they're also really good at brainstorming workarounds Mm. That, I think, is one of the unsung heroic qualities of a lot of the folks working in Marvel editorial is that they are absolutely brilliant at making a thing work. Mm -hmm. That's been really, really impressive to see in action. And what's wonderful, too, is that, you know, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly are writing uh, another Captain America book, this one focused on Steve Rogers. And we've been able to have the most extraordinary conversations about, you know, the different directions that we're taking our books in, but also just like the incredible storytelling possibilities that lay ahead. And I think that's like the extent of what I can say on that. (laughs) (laughs) It's such an honor. Like, I still can't believe, like you were saying it, you know, in introducing this segment. And it was like I was realizing it all over again. Like, wait a second, I'm writing Captain America. (laughs) I have to admit that after reading Goliath, our conversation with Tochi was not what I expected. His vision of the future in that book is so dark and unsparing. And then in person, his personality is so full of joy and light. And it it makes me really curious about the sensibility he's going to bring to the world of Captain America, because that universe is pretty dark too, but it's also got a playful side. Yeah, I know what you mean. He's got such a huge range of ideas that he can explore, both on the interpersonal level between Sam and the other characters, and also on the international level. It's going to be fascinating to see what kind of tone he strikes. Were you surprised to learn that he has complete creative control? That's something I've always wondered about. Are the Marvel writers just writing what they're told to write? And to find out, no, they get to do whatever they want and Marvel will just make it work? It fills me with a lot of love for the company. I was very surprised. I have done a little writing for Disney and they reviewed and exercised veto power over every plot decision. 
I mean, I, I had a tiny assignment, not remotely the same level as what Tochi has with Marvel, but I would still have extrapolated from my experience a kind of corporate mindset. It's so exciting that Marvel gives their writers such freedom, and I cannot wait to see his Captain America. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Tochi at tochionyabuchi.com and on Twitter at Tochi True Story. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.